You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is entitled Sacrifices. Hello again, my radio friends. I'm glad you've joined me today for another look into God's Word, the Bible. There is no question that some parts of the Bible are hard to understand, and sometimes it takes a great deal of study to find what some passages are all about. On the other hand, that is probably a good thing. Otherwise, some people might say, Ah, the Bible I know it all. The Apostle Paul, who under inspiration wrote much of the Bible, has this to say about God, the one who inspired him and others to write. He says, Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? And that's from Romans eleven thirty-three to 35. I dare say that you could study the Bible for a whole lifetime, and there would still be lots more to learn. Because the Bible is a profound book. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, and the first verse, is a statement about practical Christianity. But to some, it may appear as an oxymoron. In case you're unsure, an oxymoron is a statement where one part appears to contradict the other part. Verse 1 of Romans 12 says, Therefore I urge you, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Well, let's see if we can understand this and see if we can work out the implications for the Christian. The book of Romans is the basic gospel, and it was aimed in the first instance at the Christian church in Rome. That group of believers could never be described as Roman Catholics, although they lived in Rome. They were new believers and were taught the fundamental gospel of Jesus Christ. Many people belonging to this church were ex-Jews and they understood what the sacrificial system was all about. Prior to the coming of Jesus, a Jewish believer was required to follow a certain ritual if he wanted to have his sins forgiven. He had to get a lamb from his flock of sheep. The lamb was to be a young male, and it had to have no defects whatsoever. That lamb then had to be taken to the temple. And with a priest in attendance, the sinner was required to lay one hand on the head of the lamb 
and confess his sin or sins. With the other hand, using a knife, the repentant sinner would cut the lamb's throat. Blood would spurt out and the lamb would die. The priest would then take some of the blood and pour it out before the altar. The animal's life was given for the sinner's life. It was a substitute. The repentant sinner could then go home with his sins forgiven. Why was the lamb called a sacrifice? Well, think about it. A lamb in the then Jewish economy was worth quite a sum of money. Beside that, it had to be in perfect condition and it had to be killed and the only benefit the repentant sinner would get would be forgiveness because he couldn't take home the skin or any of the meat. I'm fairly certain that having to sacrifice a lamb each time the sinner wanted forgiveness would make him think twice before committing any future sin. So what were the main elements of the sacrifice? Well, firstly, it was for purification. Secondly, it was the only way for sins to be forgiven prior to Christ's sacrifice. See, it was a substitute. And then, fourthly, the whole lamb, not just part, was used. Fifthly, it was to please God as well as cleanse the sinner. And then the sacrifice was for the benefit of the individual and the community. And then it was a sign that the sinner intended to give up his sinful ways. Most of you are probably not aware how animals are killed at the abattoirs. These days they often use a bolt gun, which when placed against the animal's head, shoots out a retractable metal rod that penetrates the animal's brain and stuns it. That's what happens with cattle. Pigs and sheep are mostly stunned electrically. Immediately after stunning, the animal is hoisted up by one of the back legs and hung. It's still alive, but it does not feel anything. During the hanging process, some of the main blood vessels in the neck are cut. The animal then dies due to a loss of blood. I was brought up on a farm, and I've seen my father kill a sheep by cutting its throat. Countrified as I was, I found the killing quite distressing. Now here's a question for you. Is a sacrifice a good thing? You may well answer, well, it was good for the ones or the ones for whom the sacrifice was given, but for the sacrifice itself, it was bad because its life ended. The Bible tells about when many people made an animal sacrifice at the one time. It was in Egypt where the Israelites were slaves 
of the Egyptians. God wanted his people to come out of Egypt, to liberate them, to become a separate and holy nation. The king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, on nine separate occasions refused to let the people go, although God had caused the Egyptians to suffer because of Pharaoh's stubbornness. The plagues that hit Egypt progressively grew in intensity, and God was forced to up the ante each time. The tenth plague would be, and was, absolutely devastating. The Hebrews, that is the Israelites, were told to kill a lamb, paint the doorposts and lintels of their houses with the lamb's blood, roast the lamb and eat it on a certain night and not go to bed afterwards. The people were to be dressed and ready to travel, to walk out of Egypt. During that night, the angel of death passed through all the land of Egypt and struck dead all the firstborn, all, that is, except with the lamb that had been sacrificed, had its blood painted on the door frames of the houses. The angel of death passed over those houses. No one died there. That date is a time of celebration in Jewish tradition. It's called the Passover. The Lamb's death saved the people from dying. Where there was no sacrifice, the firstborn in every Egyptian home died. Those who believed God and complied with his instructions were safe. Those who did not comply with God's instructions suffered. The sacrifice made the difference between life and death. And you can read for yourself about the liberation of the Hebrew people from Egypt in Exodus chapters 7 through to 12. But what is this business about that Christians should be living sacrifices? One of the things that stands out in this verse is that the Apostle Paul demarcates human beings or believers to be living sacrifices, not dead ones. But how can that be? In one sense, Paul is talking about personal issues that we, believers, should sacrifice or to cut off from or to separate ourselves from the old, selfish, sinful way of life we lived in the past. The terminology sacrifices implies removal of sin and in its place have righteousness and goodness. Of course, that makes perfect sense because when someone becomes a Christian, the focus of your life changes from selfishness and sinfulness to living in harmony with God's will. You cannot claim to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, 
and still carry on enjoying sinful things as before. Your words and actions would become a contradiction. Christianity is something that you are and live 24 hours every day and seven days a week. Christianity is not like a coat that you put on for an hour or two a week. It must be the new you, living a new way. In the Jewish sacrificial system, when the repentant sinner had made the sacrifice, he walked away with his sins forgiven. He was cleansed and purified by that sacrifice. In Romans 12 verse 1, Paul highlights this, where he says that Christians should be holy and pleasing to God. But you may have noticed earlier that one of the elements of the sacrifice of the Lamb was that the sacrifice was for the benefit of the repentant sinner and for others. We're going to stop here and go on straight afterwards. Let me be a living sermon for thee Some people would rather see than hear one With a smile on my face and my place in the sun Doing the things in this world you want done Seven days of the week let my every action speak Louder than anything I could say With God as my guide And my eyes to the sky Lord, let me be A living sermon for Thee Let me be an instrument of peace Sharing your love with others And where there is strife Lord, use my life Grant me your wisdom To know how to help my brothers Not for worldly acclaim no game just for the peace you've given for those who would be greatest are those who are least Lord let me be a living sermon for thee
Just before the break, I was saying that the sacrifice was for the benefit of the repentant sinner and for others. And it goes something like this. At some stage of your life, you've probably had a prickle or a splinter stuck in your finger or foot. Did it make any difference to you? Of course it did. It hurt. You want to get rid of it. When there is someone in your community or family who is living a reckless, selfish life, it impacts on others. Take the family where a child or young adult gets hooked on drugs. How does the rest of the family react? Well, they're stressed, troubled and saddened and only wish that that person could live a normal life. How do the neighbours respond when a paroled criminal, for example, maybe a pedophile, comes to live in the community? They don't like it. They are wary and uncomfortable. In the spiritual sense, when someone comes to God, accepts the sacrifice to have their sins forgiven, that person lives a life of righteousness and goodness. They have no intention to harm anyone. They do not pose a threat as they live their lives peacefully in accordance with God's will. They, according to Paul, are a benefit to those who live with or near them. If you have a neighbour who is a true Christian, you have a wonderful neighbour, someone who can be trusted and who's pleasant and wants to live in harmony with God and man. Another interesting point from what Paul has written is that when a Jewish person made a sacrifice, the whole lamb was sacrificed. Nothing was taken home and nothing was kept back. In urging believers to be living sacrifices, the Apostle is saying that as Christians, we must give our all. You can't be a 50% Christian. You can't even be a 90% Christian. It must be 100%. I have the feeling that some who claim to be Christians have the idea that they can have their cake and eat it too. No, that doesn't work. You must be a 100% Christian 100% of the time. It involves a full commitment. Of course, that doesn't mean that you won't ever make any mistakes. But it does mean that you want to intentionally please God all the time. 
provision is made for when we fall. Because in 1 John 1 9, it tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In this program today, I want to acknowledge that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He gave his all, including his life, for the benefit of others. Without what Jesus did for us, there would be no hope for anyone. Religion, most of all Christianity, would be pointless, as there would be nothing beyond the temporary nature of man. No future, no hope of better things. The text in Romans 12.1 speaks about a living sacrifice. The Christian sacrifice is of the living person. The Christian is to present himself alive with all his or her energies and powers dedicated to the service of God. We mustn't miss that point. As living sacrifices, we must commit ourselves, our all, in the service of God. As such, we become acceptable to God. In the Jewish sacrificial services, as a sin offering, the repentant sinner was required to bring a lamb without defect. If instead he brought a bunch of celery or a watermelon, how do you think God would like that? Well, it would not be acceptable. God would not be pleased. In post-crucifixion times, there is no need to make animal sacrifices. They have been superseded because Jesus, the once-for-all sacrifices, suffices for all people at all times. But, yet, we are exhorted to be living sacrifices. See it this way. God who so loved the world, who gave his Son, is well pleased when people turn from their self-destructive lives and give themselves wholly to him. Thus they make it impossible for God to fulfil his gracious... I'm going to say that again. Thus they make it possible for God to fulfil his gracious purpose, to reclaim them and bring them to the perfection in which mankind was originally created. Let me ask you some final questions. Is there anything else you can bring to God that will please him? Would God be happy to receive a new television set, a piece of land, $50,000 or some expensive jewellery? No, of course not. None of those things would please God. The only and the best thing you can bring God is you. Yes, you yourself. 
This is what Paul was talking about. Forget those other things. Offer yourself. That is your acceptable sacrifice. After all, God gave everything through his Son, Jesus Christ, for you. And what we should do is offer ourselves to him. Now, some of you who listen to my voice week after week have probably thought, should I give myself into the hands of God? Should I accept the gracious act that was done for me where Jesus died for my sins? Should I commit to God and obey him? <laughs> Dear friends, only you can answer this question. I can urge you to commit yourself to God, but I can't make up your mind for you. Why don't you take the step now and say to God, Yes, Lord, I do want you in my life. I want to follow you. Help me carry through on my decision. You'll be so glad you did. Well, we must finish for today. Be sure to join me next time. And in the meantime, I wish you joy and peace and hope and a willingness to commit yourself to the one who loves you supremely.